Welcome to Worldview from the Irish Times. I'm Dennis Staunton. Today we hear what the Winter Olympics in Sochi mean for Vladimir Putin and his grip on power in Russia. In Washington, comprehensive immigration reform meets a bump in the road, and Switzerland votes to restrict the number of EU citizens who can live there. We begin in Sochi, where the Winter Olympics have got off to a good start, despite a few glitches in the opening ceremony and some grumbling about the standard of hotels. Russia has responded to the threat of terrorism from the neighboring North Caucasus by rolling out the biggest security operation ever seen at an Olympic Games. Maliki Clerken is in Sochi to report on the Games for the Irish Times, and he joins me now. Maliki, there are 40,000 security officials protecting Sochi. How intrusive is the operation? Um, I guess it, it, it's certainly very visible. Uh, obtrusive, um, you, you sort of, you sort of expect a certain amount of it and you kind of learn to deal with it. I mean, I counted on Sunday, I think I went through x-ray machines 12 times during the day. Now, that seems like an awful lot, but after a while you sort of become inured to it. Um, they, there is, an enormous amount of, of security everywhere. Um, they, they are at all train stations, every bus you take, there's a, there's, um, you, you, they, sorry, every bus you take is, every time it comes into the station, it is checked out, checked over by two soldiers who put mirrors underneath and above it uh, and all over before anyone's allowed to get off it. So um, you, you certainly know that you're in a place where security is being taken very seriously. And uh, I believe that the uh, the X-ray machines, not only do you go through the X-ray machines, but they also pat you down after you go through them, no matter what, even if you don't don't set them off. Is that yeah, right? and I, I, I've actually, I've never come across that before. You know, anybody who's used to going through airports, uh, often, of course, like keys or coins or something in your pocket causes it to beep and you get patted down. But this is as a matter of course. You walk through the machine and then you get patted down and every sort of, uh, every loose piece of clothing checked over. Um, but as I say, after a while, uh, you, you just become inured to it. Uh, the Russian authorities say that they've tried to make the security operation as warm and as friendly as they could. Have they succeeded in that? I don't know if I would say particularly friendly. They, I mean, the volunteers, as they are at any Olympics, are a delight. You know, they're, they always have the sort of the youngest people, the most enthusiastic people, they make them the volunteers. Uh, they're there to help everybody go where they where they want to go. Uh, volunteers tend to be younger as well, which means that they tend to be uh, tend to have done English in school, so they they're multilingual and very helpful. Um, the security people are a lot more stern. Um, they are, although they've given them very garish tracksuits to wear, they uh, they're they're a lot more surly, a lot more stern, and and not uh, you wouldn't you certainly wouldn't call them friendly. But um, I guess that's just the nature of the beast. There, there is an inordinate amount of them. That's the that's the thing that that strikes you. Like everywhere you go, there are two at least two guys standing together guarding. Uh, sort of a 200-yard patch of ground, and that's theirs and theirs only. And it is, uh, you, you don't at any stage, it, it, it never at any stage feels like being in just a normal city at a normal time, which I guess it's absolutely not. This is not a normal city. Um, it's also not a normal games in a sense. It's also not a normal... Certainly not, no. And, you know, it's, uh, um, this is, you know, the, the threat we're allowed to believe is, is, of course, 
really very real. I mean, um, Chechnya is less than a couple of hundred miles away from here. There have been well-documented um, threats from from groups saying that they want to disrupt these Olympics. Um, so uh, I, I guess it would be weird if it felt normal. Well, one of the curiosities, though, about the Games is that, uh, that they seem to have everything except spectators. Why are the spectators in such short supply? Well, I mean, this is something that happens at an awful lot of Olympics uh, because they, uh, most Olympics make the uh, procedure for getting tickets ever more complicated. Now, this there's an added layer of complication here in that the security system is so uh, overbearing that if you want tickets for an event, you have to send away for accreditation. You don't just rock up with your tickets. You have to be wearing an accreditation with your picture on it and your passport number on it. Um, and that all takes time. So if, say, uh, somebody is sitting at home on their couch in Sochi today, um, it's an awful rigmarole for them to decide, well, next week I want to go to the ice hockey. I mean, if you don't have your ticket now, you probably won't have it. It is also, on top of which, um, the, all the sort of pre-publicity and um, everything that happened in, in the build-up um, has, I would imagine, deprived the place of an international audience. I know in London two years ago, there were people from all over the world. There was a real sort of melting pot of the city for the two weeks that the Olympics was on and the two weeks that the Paralympics was on afterwards. You don't get any sense of that here in Sochi. Anybody here that you meet that isn't Russian is either connected to one of the athletes or they're working at the Games, whether they're uh, with the IOC, whether they're uh, with the media, whether they're with uh, sponsors, whatever. And speaking of the um, media, Maliki, uh, just finally, uh, the, uh, speaking of the media, some of your uh, journalistic colleagues have been moaning and complaining about the standard of hotels and running water and all the rest of it. But do you think the Russians have done a decent job organising these games? Well, I can only I can only speak for the Irish Times, and the Irish Times have been taken care of perfectly. Uh, but <laughs> I think that's more uh, down to the fact that we uh, we left booking our hotels for the last minute, and we didn't get into the media hotels. Um, I did find it weird, frankly, that um, of all the set of hotels that the organisers could have left until last to do, um, I surely wouldn't have been choosing the ones that ESPN were staying in, and CNN and NBC because. You're going to find an awful lot of, uh, as you well know, Dennis, uh, journalists are world-class moaners, and if they find something not to their liking, they have Twitter accounts and they're not afraid to use them. Um, the Irish Times Hotel is, is perfectly fine. Delighted and, to hear uh, it. I, uh, I have no complaints in that. Excellent. Maliki Clerken in Sochi, thank you. For Vladimir Putin, the Sochi Games are about much more than sport. They're widely seen as the Russian president's personal project, an attempt to burnish his country's image and his own. The dominant political figure in Russia since he succeeded Boris Yeltsin as president in 2000, Putin has been ruthless in crushing dissent and deft in building alliances, most recently with conservatives in the Russian Orthodox Church. Isabel Gorse joins me now from Moscow. Isabel, how important are these games for Vladimir Putin? I think they're very, very important for Vladimir Putin and they're very important for Russia. It's the first time since 1980, which is back in the Soviet era, that Russia has hosted the Olympics. And it's important to show, as a showcase for the new Russia that Putin is building. Now, before Christmas, Putin released the oligarch Mikhail Khodorkovsky and the members of the performance art group Pussy Riot from prison. Is this a sign that he is so strong now in terms of his own position that he no longer fears dissent? I think it's a sign that Putin 
the release of these very high-profile prisoners is a sign that Putin is feeling fairly confident in his position. He also wants to burnish his image in the West a bit, even the relations with some Western countries are difficult. And it was a way of appeasing some critics in the West, or seeing it was about to let out Mr. Hadakovsky and the Pussy Riot girls. I don't, I don't think that Putin, however, is so confident that he thinks he doesn't have to worry about dissent anymore. In fact, since he started his third term in power, he's taken steps to make it far more difficult to demonstrate, to criticize the government, which is, can be seen really as a sign of weakness rather than a sign of strength. And where would the opposition to him come from? There are, his, his overall rating is very, very high for any world leader. He's got more than 60% support from the population, according to independent polls. The opposition, which we hear about, is mostly centered in Moscow, where you have the most educated people and the people who are better off. It's where most of the new middle class are living. And these people want more, more political freedoms. They don't like the crackdown. Out in the regions, there's less information. People only really see state television, and they're more or less satisfied with Putin. The real reason being that their living standards have got a lot better under Putin. People here are still very poor in general, but they're not as poor as they used to be. And there are far more amenities, far more shops. They can travel overseas. Basically, life has got a lot better for the majority of Russians. And just uh, one, uh, finally, much of the controversy outside Russia about these games has focused on a new law banning the promotion of homosexuality to minors. Why did Vladimir Putin choose that fight? I think that's a very big question, why he chose that fight and also the timing just before the Olympics. I think that many people in Moscow now see it was a mistake, that the Russian government underestimated the strength of the gay lobby in the U.S. and in Europe. And they probably just didn't anticipate that that law would cause such a huge outcry and even risk of a boycott of the games. At the same time, Putin has, as you said, allied more closely with the Russian Orthodox Church. He, he does go to church himself. And the church is extremely conservative in Russia and is against homosexuality. And I think there is a lot of homophobia in Russia, unfortunately. So perhaps Putin thought he was playing to ordinary people who just don't like gays and find it very puzzling that, that gays are so open in the West. At the same time, there's a big group of people in the government who see that it's not very sensible and that in the end, Russia needs to promote tolerance in all sectors because it's multi-ethnic society. It's got very, very diverse kind of population and tolerance is essential for for long-term security and prosperity, really. Isabel Gorst in Moscow, thank you. Until a few days ago, campaigners for immigration reform in the United States were confident that this year could see a deal between Democrats and Republicans that would allow millions of undocumented workers, including thousands of Irish citizens, to come out of the shadows. But last week, Republican leaders on Capitol Hill said they no longer believed a deal was possible this year. Simon Carswell joins me now from Washington. Simon, what happened? Well, the week before last, John Boehner, who's the House Speaker, a Republican, very senior Republican in the party's leadership, he had said that he'd come up with a list, a one-page list of principles on which Republicans, he felt, could do a deal on immigration reform. Immigration reform had passed the Senate in a cross-party bill, but that bill had stalled in the Republican-controlled House of Representatives. Now, it looked like Boehner was actually going to be able to convince House Republicans to get a deal, and he came out with these principles. Then, a week later, he said that he didn't think a deal was possible. 
um, there was a well-known columnist here in the U.S. who described the kind of tussle between and amongst Republicans uh, as it reminds him of a time when he was a cub reporter and he asked a state senator whether he was for or against an issue and the senator told him, well, on the record, yes, uh, but off the record, no. And that's really what's kind of going on here with Boehner and the senior Republicans. Um, when it comes to immigration, <clears throat> the answer is likely to be, on the record, no, but off the record, yes, <clears throat> they're for us. And really, the Republicans, they need immigration reform. It's, it's a huge issue for the country at large. And they need it if they're going to retake the White House. Because if you look at uh, Obama's victory in 2012, Obama won 71% of the Hispanic vote against Mitt Romney. And it's hard to see the Republicans winning back the White House from a Democratic candidate without the support of Hispanics. And the statistics are really clear. You know, you had Romney won vote white voters over by 20 percentage points over Obama, independent voters by five, and yet he still lost to Obama by 126 electoral votes. The two reasons, really, that House Republicans don't want this at a local level, they're facing the midterm elections in November. Um, and this is when a third of the Senate seats will be decided and all 435 seats in the House. Um, and many of the Republicans, because of the redistricting of constituencies where uh, uh, constituencies have become more Republican, they're fearful of challenges from primary contenders. So they don't want to be voting for something as contentious as immigration reform uh, before those elections because it might cost them their seat. So for that reason, at a national level, the Republicans know they need to reform immigration laws, but at a local level, there are loads to do it. But it did look for a few months ago as if the Republican establishment was starting to hit back against a lot of these wilder Tea Party candidates who were mounting all these primary challenges, and that Boehner started to talk tough about his more radical fringe in the House, but he now seems to have caved. What's happened? Well, there's nothing better that focuses the mind than a ballot box, and I think that's what's happened here amongst Republicans. Uh, the view is that the Republican House Republican uh, House Republicans are split in three. A third know that they have to do immigration reform. It's important, and certainly they would feel that if they're going to hang on to control of the House, they need to agree immigration reform. Another third would probably think that, yes, they may be, but they're maybe need to do it, but they're very reluctant to do it, and they're not at all happy because of the unpopularity of the president uh, amongst Republicans. And then there's a third of the Republican uh, House Republicans, Tea Party faction, far-right, hardliners, who will never agree to immigration reform under any circumstances. So what Boehner had initially said, well, maybe I can convince the party to move them towards immigration reform. But I think the... the the noises he was hearing back behind closed doors from House Republicans that we're not going to do it before the elections this year. It's too big a risk. There's too many seats uh, at risk uh, being won by far-right Tea Party uh, members, so we're not going to do it this year. Will they do it after the election? Well, there's some interesting proposals been put forward. Um, you had two very senior Republicans. You had Congressman Paul Ryan, who is Mitt Romney's vice presidential candidate. You had the Senate, the party Senate leader, Mitch McConnell, said that wouldn't happen this year. But one proposal that was put out there by Chuck Schumer, who's the, the New York senator, Democrat, he proposed, and he, he's, he's one of the uh, co-authors of the Senate bill and is very much pushing for this comprehensive immigration reform. He has said, well, why don't we pass it now and leave it uh, to be enacted and introduced into law and become into effect until the next president is in power in 2017. Very novel idea, and he thought he, thought he could pull the rug from under some of the more far-right uh, House Republicans who are concerned that they don't trust Obama to, um, to implement the laws. And that was the major concern that John Boehner raised when he said that it's not going to happen this year. He said that 
given the debacle that was the rollout of Obamacare and Republicans are suspicious of the president because he's climbed down on many things that had been agreed on Obamacare, they're fearful that another sweeping comprehensive piece of legislation like immigration reform, it wouldn't be enacted and they just don't trust the president to do that. This is interesting because Barack Obama has deported uh, an estimated 2 million uh, undocumented immigrants since he came to power. That's more than any president before him. And yet the Republicans don't believe that he's prepared to implement the law. Yeah, it says a lot about the level of uh, distrust amongst uh, Republicans for the president and also the, the, his unpop unpopularity on Capitol Hill. Um, they really don't trust him, given what happened with Obamacare to introduce this comprehensive set, uh, imp comprehensive immigration reforms. And Schumer, Schumer's uh, suggestion was really an acknowledgement that we know you don't trust and we know you have a major problem with the White House and it's incumbent. Um, and we're coming up with this novel idea that if we pass this, we'll introduce all of the changes that, um, uh, that we're planning to and on which you will vote in 2017. But again, they're not biting. I think there's too much at risk with the midterm elections and they're fearful that they'll lose their own seats. Finally, what's the role that Irish America and the Irish government plays in this entire debate? Well, the, the Irish are fighting on two fronts. One is on the issue of the illegal immigrants. And the figure that's been put out there is about 50,000 illegal Irish are undocumented in the U.S. I mean, no one really knows the figure. It, it runs to tens of thousands, though, but no one has the exact figure. And again, the Irish would be pushing their cause. They have a lot of friends on Capitol Hill. There are a lot of friends in the White House as well. So they would be coming in saying, listen, this really needs to be done. You need to regularize the situation and legalize the situation of all these illegal immigrants. And the other area that they're fighting on is the issue of the new immigrants that would be coming in. And the Irish have said they've been disadvantaged for many decades and by the 1965 legislation. So the view is, is that we need a new set of Irish visas, and they come up with this clever proposal called the E3 visas, which Australians have them, but Irish don't, where you would get, uh, the, the proposal is to issue 10,500 new visas to Irish immigrants who want to come to the U.S. and work legally. Um, that's really been put on the back burner. The view is, is that very much it's about pushing uh, the illegal issue and the issue of the undocumented these are the people who are stuck in America and can't leave because of the risk of not being able to get back in. These are the people who are missing major family occasions at home, uh, funerals uh, and, and weddings uh, and the like. And on the issue of the E3 visas, they're really putting that back and seeing, well, if there is some bill that's passed, maybe we can slip it in at the last minute. Um, and that would be, there seems to be a lot of goodwill towards the E3 visas. You had Paul Ryan um, of the Republican Party saying that he was, quite keen on the idea. But again, the stumbling block and the main issue for uh, on the whole immigration debate is the issue of the illegal immigrants. And if that uh, whole issue of uh, undocumented immigrants uh, is off the table now for the rest of this year, is there any chance that the uh, advocates of this E3 visa for the Irish will start to try to move it up the agenda? I don't think so. I think the view is that the E3 visas will always be something that can come in in the coattails of a wider immigration reform bill. Now, the Democrats are quite keen to have a comprehensive bill. If the Republicans agree to anything, and it's highly unlikely that they will, particularly this year, it will be in a series of, of bills, a smaller bill, step-by-step -step bills. And Republicans are very keen that border control is sorted out so they strengthen the borders so that if there are changes to immigration laws, there won't be a whole new wave of illegal immigrants coming in trying to take advantage of those. So border control is a major issue. And that's why the Republicans want legislation uh, introduced piecemeal to try and resolve the immigration issue. And then in those circumstances, I think the view would be from a lot of the Irish immigration advocates, they would say, well, we'll try and get the E3 visas in at a later, day, a later stage. Simon Carswell in Washington, thank you.
On Sunday, Swiss voters backed by a narrow majority a proposal to limit the numbers of migrants from the European Union that can enter the country. Switzerland is not part of the EU, but it has close ties, including access to the single market and, until now, an agreement allowing the free movement of persons between the EU and Switzerland. Our European correspondent, Suzanne Lynch, is on the line from Brussels. Where, Suzanne, nobody's very happy with the Swiss, is that right? Yes, that's very true. There was definitely a, a sense of shock here um, at the referendum result on Sunday. Switzerland, like Ireland, have a lot of referendums, referenda, and uh, they have previously voted on this issue, but have never backed uh, to introduce curb, curbs on EU migration. Um, 15 years ago, they signed up to free trade agreement with the EU, and effectively on Sunday, they voted to uh, reintroduce these restrictions that were there before. Um, so people are taking a wait-and-see attitude here in Brussels. There's definitely a sense of anger, but what officials are stressing is that now the ball is in Switzerland's court, and it's up to the Swiss government um, to to inform them about how they plan to implement this these, this change to, to Swiss law. They now have three years in which to do so. So the Swiss government, it's got three years to introduce legislation to take account of the referendum on Sunday. But what room for manoeuvre does it have in terms of shaping that legislation? Yeah, this is the question. I mean, the, the, the actual uh, motion... Uh, states about restrictions, about um, a limit on residency permits, but but doesn't actually mention any figures. So is there room here for, for manoeuvre on um, the numbers, maybe, um, on the percentage, on specific countries? So there, there could be some, some room for manoeuvre here. So in a way, Brussels is kind of playing a clever game, saying, well, we're going to wait and see what Byrne comes back to us with. Um, now, the Swiss government is meeting this week, and they are going to... Um, to uh, submit a proposal to Parliament. So really it's, it's a wait-and-see attitude now to see what they come up with. If the Swiss do go ahead with something that the EU doesn't like, what can the EU do in response? Well, they said very clearly that if the if in the next few years and they implement this, if this is in violation of the bilateral agreements they have with Switzerland, well, then this will have a definite knock-on effect on other agreements. It's quite a complicated it's quite a complicated process. Switzerland has seven different bilateral arrangements with the EU, and these span everything from agriculture to air traffic control to education. And it has said that if there's a change to free movement rules that had been agreed between EU and Switzerland, well, then this will have a knock-on effect on other uh, regulations, on other arrangements that Switzerland has with the EU. I mean, the sense now is that Brussels is not prepared, really, to accept any challenge to its free movements rules, which is one of the four pillars of, in the European Union Treaty. Um, so it will probably take a tough line with Switzerland saying, you, know, you can't cherry-pick what you want from the European Union. Um, if you if you sign up to free movement rules, fine. You get other you know you get other advantages. But if you move away from those free movement agreements, there will be consequences. Now this Swiss vote comes before David Cameron is seeking to renegotiate Britain's membership of the EU. Is that prospect concentrating minds in Brussels in terms of taking a tougher line with the Swiss? Yes, absolutely. I think the, the larger ramifications of this vote is is is, is the wider context. Um, yesterday, officials in Brussels were forced to defend their policy. People were asking them, well, is there not a problem about the, is there not a public perception issue around the issue of migration? Free movement, which was always seen as one of the most positive things about the European Union, is now being used as an anti-EU tool throughout the bloc. Um, again, in Brussels, there's been a sense, okay, if, the, if Britain has a referendum, 
chances are people will not vote uh, vote to, to sever ties with the EU. But what the Swiss referendum has shown is that people will. People will vote against the European Union when it comes to it. So I think it's 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 um it it's it's scared the establishment here to a sense in the sense that the Swiss referendum could be seen as a precursor for what could come down the line with other countries within the European Union. Suzanne Lynch, thank you. And that's all from this edition of Worldview from producer Sinead O'Shea, sound engineer Robert Sullivan and from me, Dennis Staunton, goodbye. <laughs>